Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Here we could start doing this every week um, as, as God brings people to be a part of this whole thing. And we're hoping that this space will be a unique space, that it'd be a space where people can encounter God, maybe for the first time, where they can make real relationships that are meaningful and deep, where they can ask questions, uh, where they can find community and where we can grow together. Um, and I'm really appreciative that Ibo ca called me the man of God several times. I really feel honored by that. And I know that, that there is truth to that because, you know, I, I'm a pastor and I'm a preacher, but also I also know that I'm nobody special, right? Uh, that I'm just a man <laughs> that is up here because I really believe that the gospel is good news. And I want you to hear this because I, I want to make a space where we can make that as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Um, but tonight, uh, as we look at this passage in John, we're, we're going to be talking about conversion. Um, and that is kind of a weird thing to talk about. When I think about conversion, when I think about people who try to convert me, usually I think about you know, the guy who's yelling in the bullhorn in the, in the street, or I think about little old ladies with, with pamphlets knocking on my door and me trying to turn out the lights and pretend that, that I'm not home, right? I think about pushy people. I think about people who are, are very passionately trying to tell me something, but even while they're talking, I wonder, uh, is this about me? Is it about your caring for me, or is it really more... This passage we're looking at today, though, is, is very different. It talks about, uh, it gives us a very different perspective on what conversion is, what it really means, what it means for someone to come to a place of faith. And it, it shows us that when a person goes from not believing in Jesus to then knowing Jesus and following Jesus with all of their lives, that it's actually a very different process than what we tend to think about. It's not like those things I mentioned earlier. It's not about just being convinced of a certain set of doctrines. It's not about uh, agreeing that the, the, quote, Christian lifestyle is a, is a good lifestyle to live. It's just a uh, choice and more like being swept up by a power outside of yourself. And so that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. I want to talk about conversion, and I want to talk about what conversion isn't, what conversion is, and what happens when we believe. Guys, we're having our first set of technical difficulties today. The screen is going to be in the small corner now, but that's okay. Let's not worry about it. But what conversion isn't, what conversion is, and what happens when we believe. So um, 
What conversion isn't? Around the time my oldest daughter was born, her name's Ruby, you probably just saw her in here, uh, we had a neighbor, uh, and she lived in the apartment next to us, and we were on pretty good terms with her, talked to her quite a bit, and church services, that's what happens uh, if you run into me, you know that now, all of you. Um, but she made it clear that she wasn't a Christian, but she did have some kind of church background. I think she said when she was a kid, her mom took her to church, or maybe her aunt or her grandma or something like that. But what was really funny was the way she viewed Christianity. She thought of being a Christian like a responsible step that you should take at some point in your adult life. And so she would, she would tell me, you know, well, I'm definitely going to become a Christian someday. She thought about becoming a Christian maybe the same way you think of, like about saving for retirement <laughs> or, or making sure that you plan, you know, regular dental checkups, right? It's the right. But then she told me, I will do it, but, but not yet. Because I have some things I want to do in my life right now that Christians aren't supposed to do. And I think that, that statement at the end is really telling, right? Because what, 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 she's, what she's saying there is that for her being a Christian, what it really meant was getting serious about the rules, right? Being a Christian meant that it's about becoming more disciplined. It's about becoming more responsible. Maybe it's about adopting some kind of set of traditional values and probably giving up on having fun. But that's not what it means. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what it is at all. It's the afternoon. This is what happens but when you preach in the morning for years and years. But yes, 4 o'clock, it's the afternoon, and we're looking at the Gospel of John, which is one of four books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, if you read this whole book, what you'll discover pretty quickly is that the moral people, the people who are serious about the rules, the religious people, the ones who are all about doing it right, are actually the ones who are the farthest from Jesus. Like John chapter 3. Uh, the most famous verse probably in the, all the Bible is in John chapter 3, right? You know it? You can read it with me, okay? For God, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16, right? We see it at all the sporting events and everything like that. But do you know who Jesus said that to? Well, he said it to this man named Nicodemus. And who was Nicodemus? Well, he was actually an expert in the scriptures. He was a teacher of the law. He knew all the rules and he followed them well. And you know what else? He was a pretty good guy. He wasn't a jerk like some of these other Pharisees you might think of. He was a really decent man. And yet, in that very same conversation, what Jesus says to him is, you must be born again. He says, all of that good stuff, it doesn't matter. Or in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, he tells a really famous parable. Uh, we, we usually call it the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but it, what it really is, it's the story of a father who has two sons. Uh, an older son and a younger son, and the younger son demands that his father give him his inheritance. So while his father is still alive, incredibly insulting, he asks for all of his inheritance, and the father gives it to him. And so the younger son, it says, he goes off and he squanders it. He, he ruins his entire life, and he 
ends up into the, this place where he's completely destitute and he has to go back to his father to, to beg for forgiveness. And it says in that moment, the father goes out to him. He wraps his arm around him. He welcomes him in to welcome him back. But that's not the, the end of the story. The actual end of the story is when they get back. The older brother sees all this and he's angry. And when he sees that the father has responded to this younger brother with mercy and grace, here's what he says. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. The one who followed all the rules, the one who thinks he did everything right, standing outside the party, refusing to come in, clinging on instead to his own sense of righteousness, his own sense of what justice should be. See, people tend to think that conversion is about this decision to follow a certain moral code, to, to become a good Christian person. But in the Bible, we see that, that actually it's the opposite that's, that's the truth. That the people who think they're good are the ones on the outside looking in. The ones who are really far from faith. The ones who don't know God. But the people who are the ones that are nearest to Jesus. Those are the ones who are closest to entering the kingdom. In the Gospels, the religious people are grumbling and complaining and standing in judgment over Jesus. But the ones who know about their need. They're the ones running to him, flocking around him, unashamed. So here's what conversion isn't. Conversion isn't a choice to be good from now on. It's not a choice to start going to church or to start following the Ten Commandments or anything like that. Okay, so then what is it? That's the second question. What is conversion? Let's, let's talk about that. Actually, first, let's, let's put ourselves in this passage. So I didn't tell you this, but a speech that Jesus gives right after the Last Supper. And I'm sure you've seen the painting of the Last Supper. It's the, the, right before the crucifixion. And Jesus gives this long speech to try and prepare his disciples for what's coming next. And uh, just imagine you're one of those disciples. That you have been walking around with Jesus, hanging around with him day in and day out. For years now. And in that time, you've seen some pretty amazing stuff, right? You have seen the sick healed. You have seen the hungry fed. You have seen broken lives put back together and turned around. The crowd, when thousands of people have been gathering around Jesus to hear his teaching and, and the things that he teaches, they're literally unheard of things. Things that changed the course of the world after he said them. Jesus said things like, turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor as yourself. Things that are just like, seem like common sense now to us. Jesus said them for the first time. Then one night... Imagine you're sitting with Jesus after this, this meal, and he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That's, that's who the helper is. That's who he's calling the helper. But what do you think, what might you be thinking in that moment? Jesus says, it's to your good that I go away because this helper is coming. And when he comes, I mean, what could be better than having Jesus right here? What could, how could it possibly be to our advantage that you're going to go away? What would you be thinking? You know, personally, I think I'd be imagining like, oh my, we're going to get some like crazy superpowers or something, you know, some amazing thing is going to happen to us if it's better than having Jesus here. But here's what he says. When he comes, he will convict the world and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What, is, what does that mean? Well, put simply, oh, she's worried I'm going to knock over the kingdom of God. I appreciate that warning. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a wanderer and a wiggler. Note for next time. Move forward. So here's what this means. It means that when, a, when anybody realizes that they're a sinner, when they realize they have missed the mark of holiness, Whenever a person sees that they lack righteousness, that they have some kind of guilt inside of them, whenever a person's judgment is off, that there's something skewed about the way the world sees things, whenever you realize that, that is a work of God. Or put it another way, left to our own devices, we can never admit our need for God. Now, Nobody thinks they're perfect, right? Only, only, only maybe a psychopath thinks they're perfect, right? We'll, we'll all say nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But secretly we think, but I'm probably in the upper half, right? <laughs> I'm not the best there is, but I'm, I'm above average. Here it comes, I'm telling you, anyway. I was, when I was a kid, uh, for Thanksgiving, we'd always have a, a, a big family get-together. My grandparents' house, and then my aunt and my uncle and her children would come, so all the cousins would be together, and we'd have this big family meal. It was the only time, though, all year long when we'd get to see each other, and so inevitably when we'd head back home, we'd kind of assess the group, you know, and we'd say, well, you know, there's this one side of the family and that side of the family, well, they're, you know, they're the weird ones, you know. <laughs> They're a little creepy even, you know, I'm glad we only see them once a year. And then there's the other side of the family, and they're just kind of the wild ones, you know. They're the reckless ones. They live uh, a little differently than we do. And we, of course, we're the normal ones. We're the normal. We connected with my cousin not too long ago, and somehow we were reflecting on those Thanksgivings, and she said, no, no, we were the normal ones. You guys, you're the stuck-up ones. <laughs> but isn't that kind of how we, we view everything, right? That's how we think we all are, that we're the normal ones. That, that our default way of thinking is that we're kind of in the middle. We're, we're doing fine. We're holding our own. But the Bible, it says, we're not fine. It says, in fact, we're, we're far from fine. That, that spiritually speaking, it says we have a deadly disease. The prophet Jeremiah, he describes our lives like this. He says, 
The human heart is deceitful above who can understand it. Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The Bible says that spiritually we are we're sick. But on our own, we can't see it. Now, sure, we can see some of the symptoms of the sickness, right? We can see how those symptoms play out in our lives. We can see the, the broken relationships. We can see the pain that we cause. We can see our struggles with addiction and, and self-hatred. We can see our own anxiety, our fear. We can see that emptiness that's always in our lives that we're trying to ignore or drown out. Can't quite put it together. We feel our hearts aching. We feel them longing for something, but we don't know what it is. And so, God has to show up. God has to show us with His Spirit. That's what Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit does, that He just shows up in our life. And sometimes it, it happens instantly, right? Sometimes it's like the Kool-Aid man, you know, busting through the walls, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I see it. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. But sometimes it's a lot more subtle than that. Maybe usually it's more subtle than that. This message kind of slowly in the community of faith surrounds you and, and starts to get into your life. And, and it's over the course of not one big flashy conversion, but maybe a hundred mini conversions that you come to this place where you just kind of wake up one day and you say, holy cow, Jesus is my Savior. I, I'm lost without him. I don't know what to do on my own. But regardless of how it happens, the one thing that never changes is that it's God's power, that he's the one that opens our eyes to see something that we couldn't see by ourselves. So again, conversion, it's not about just following some rules. It's not about believing some certain kind of doctrine. It's, it's not about becoming a better person. It is about so that you can see what's really going on, so that you can see that there actually is a God, and he made you to know him, and to enjoy him forever. So that you can see that your soul is sick and, and it's actually far from him and there's nothing that you can really do to fix that. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure you've heard of it, right? It's his most famous sermon. It's in Matthew chapter 5. That's where you find it. But his opening line was this famous line. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is just a little snapshot. It is this blessed moment where God lets us see what we really are. That we are poor before God. We're not middle class. We're not in the upper half. <laughs> but we are completely empty-handed, spiritually speaking. We've got nothing to offer. We've got nothing to impress him with. And what this passage says is if you can see that, then it means God is already at work. If you can look at your life and, and you can honestly say, you know what, I think I have missed the mark. I can see how even my best deeds, even my good deeds, 
I am spiritually poor. Well, Jesus is saying here that if you can say that, then you're standing on holy ground. The Spirit is already on the move in your life. That's the work of the Spirit. He, he holds up a mirror to your life to show you your brokenness, but then also to point you to the reality of a God who will make you whole again. So what happens next? What happens when someone does start to believe? See, at the core, it is the good news of a great rescue mission. It's not the dogma of some distant, far-off deity who is demanding that you live a certain way, but it is actually the mercy of God, the only God, who loves you so much that he has committed to save you at all costs. We're rebellious. We are resistant. We are stubborn. We are always clinging on to this kind of poor imitation of righteousness that tells us, hey, I'm a pretty good person. But in his mercy, in the person of Jesus, God, it's a stepped out of eternity. And he actually lived a, a he was actually perfect and holy. And, and on the cross, he took the penalty that we were supposed to get. And so now the, the invitation for anyone who would come is to come and lay down your doing. It's lay down your, your imitation of goodness and instead receive his goodness as your own. Receive his perfection as your record from now on. Admit your poverty and become rich. But, but still, that's not the whole message. Because invitation, even with that awesome offer, we still don't want it. We still resist him. We still want to live our lives apart from him and seek our own way. Still, 100 times out of 100, we're going to choose ourselves. Because that's how deep the sickness goes. One pastor um, who I really like named Jack Miller, he shared this story. Uh, there's a passage in Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. It says, Jesus is speaking there, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, usually that one's on the last page, right? It's, it's the verse that we look to and we say, this is the story of conversion. Jesus is, you know, at the door and he's knocking and I open the door and now I'm a Christian. But this, this pastor, Jack Miller, he would say, you know, that's how we like to think of it. But in reality, here's how it goes. You know, Jesus is at the door and he's knocking and then we hear him and so we grab the chair and we wedge it under the doorknob, Right? And then we get the fridge, and we push it against the chair. And then we get the dresser, and we push it against the fridge. And while we're leaning against it, the Holy Spirit, he goes down into the basement, and he lights a fire. <laughs> and the smoke starts to fill up the house, and it starts to fill up our lungs. And then in our, in our anxiety, we start to tear the things away and think, if I can just run past Jesus when I Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
That's how it goes, right? It, it's really more like he claims us as his own. And, and it might sound a little scary, but I've even heard it this way. I've heard it said, if you belong to the Lord, he'll have you. Eventually he will. But I promise there's, there's nothing to fear about that. Once you're in his arms, you realize there was nothing to fear. See, the Christian life, it's not about your work to become a better person. It is about his work to transform you into the person you were always created to be. And so the very last verse in this passage, I don't know if you heard it, the one we read is spirit. And what he's going to do, it says, is he's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that is mine, he's going to take it and declare it to you. And when you think about it, it's kind of a breathtaking phrase. Because what it means is that the very same power that sparks our faith, the very same power that enables us to see our need for the very first time is also the power that's going to sustain our faith. The reason why Jesus could look at all of his disciples and say, it's actually better that I'm leaving is because the Holy Spirit in our life is God with us every day. That he never calls him a helper. Another translation calls him an advocate. What it means is that, that he is constantly reminding us of who we are in Christ. He's taking everything that belongs to God and he is constantly declaring it to us. He is really bringing us out of our daily lives and, and bringing us into the throne room of God. An old preacher, he put it this way. He said that when somebody's injured on the battlefield, it doesn't help to come up to them and say, hey, I know you're injured, but I've got great news. There's a hospital a couple miles down the road. They've got doctors. They've got surgeons. They've got all the medicine you need. So if you just head over there, you'll be fixed up. That doesn't help a bit, right? No, what he needs is for you to pick him up. And it's the same with our wounded souls. When you trust in the Lord, his spirit enters your life and becomes that constant advocate that carries you there. He, he delivers you the grace that you need. And what is he doing? Well, he's defending you against the attacks of the world. Right? He's defending you against your own weakness. He's defending you against the evil in this world that would hunt you down and, and try to pull you away from the love of God. And daily, he is reminding you that you belong to the Lord now. And that there is nothing, like we sang about a minute ago, there is nothing that can stop his love. If he loves you so much that he's willing to step out of time and eternity and die on the cross for you, then of course there is nothing you can do now to change his mind about you, that you're loved. The Spirit's telling you you're loved, you're, you're welcomed. You are rejoiced over. Folks, that's the gospel. And that's what happens when you believe. On one hand, yeah, you're going to see your failings more clearly than you have ever seen them before. But on the other hand, you're going to see this new reality. The, the love of Christ. You're going to see this new power that's within you. You're going to know that you have been set free. Each day as that love of God sinks into your life more and more, it really changes you. That's where the power is. That's what transforms you. It changes the way that you love the people around you. 
It changes your motivation for doing good things, right? Not so that people would find me worthy, but because I have already been declared worthy. So, if you're here this evening, and you need to hear that, if you're longing for the Lord to declare you worthy, well, that's a good sign. Right? What this passage says is, is it means that, that he's already calling to you. 